we're in such a unique situation because we have two sides. We have a, a you know a, a center left Democrat doing his best, and we have a Republican Party that wants to destroy free and fair elections in America. So if you're the press, don't play that down the middle. Don't pretend those are similar choices. Yes, thank you, Eric. Please don't pretend those are similar choices. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR in Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, many other affiliates as well. Thanks to all of you for allowing us to be on your airwaves and uh, spreading the progressive truth around the globe, coast to coast and around the globe. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today for the broadcast. I want to start with some good news, good-ish news, uh, about as good as I could find today. Some accountability news, uh, at least to start things off here, as we have some darker news to come uh, today on the broadcast, unfortunately. But let me start here because we could all use some good stuff for a change. Yes, indeed, we could. Hello, Desi Doyen. Hi. A Virginia state court has disbarred Jonathan Mosley. Well, that's good news. Who's Jonathan Mosley, you may ask? Who I is will, Jonathan Mosley? I, I will tell you. He is an attorney who has represented a slew of high-profile January 6th defendants, including a member of the Oath Keepers who has been charged with seditious conspiracy, as well as several targets of the House Select Committee investigating the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Most prominent among most uh, among Mosley's criminal clients is Kelly Meggs, an Oath Keeper from Florida who took on a leadership role for the group that breached the Capitol. Mosley also previously represented Zachary Rail, one of the Proud Boys leaders charged with conspiring to obstruct Congress on January 6 on a Friday after a two day hearing. In Prince William County Circuit Court, a three-judge panel ordered Mosley's law license revoked 
according to court records, as Politico reports today. Details of the bar discipline case against Mosley were not immediately available, but a summary posted on the Virginia State Bar website on Tuesday said the court found that he violated, quote, professional rules that govern safekeeping property. Meritorious claims and contentions, candor toward the tribunal, fairness to opposing party and counsel, unauthorized practice of law, multi-jurisdictional practice of law, bar admission and disciplinary matters and misconduct. Other than that, he was a fantastic attorney. Mosley plans to fight the disbarment and uh, immediately filed an appeal. Of course, Mosley is just one of the, uh, I guess, Donald Trump supporters from the right who are facing serious disciplinary action when it comes to their uh, law licenses, including folks like uh, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani and so forth. But Mosley was, in fact, disbarred at least. Pending this appeal, Mosley's troubles with the Virginia State Bar could imperil his ability to continue as an attorney for Megs and in an array of other January 6th litigation. That is why this is actually most important. He was representing a lot of these folks, a lot of these January 6th plaintiffs who may find themselves without a lawyer at all. The most immediate impact of Mosley's disbarment may be in the upcoming trial of 11 Oath Keepers facing charges of seditious conspiracy for their role in the Capitol breach, including Megs. U.S. District Court Judge Amit Mehta has worked to keep the trial on track for July while scheduling two other Oath Keeper trials for later this year. But Mosley's exit could now complicate Meg's ability to prepare a defense at all. Mosley has also represented several major witnesses facing subpoenas from the January 6th committee, including Meg's and the Oath Keepers leader, Stuart Rhodes, Stop the Steel founder, Ali Alexander. Mosley is also listed as an attorney for the Oath Keepers organization itself in a civil lawsuit in which Democratic House members are seeking damages from former President Donald Trump and the Oath Keepers and various people charged in storming uh, the Capitol. Mosley's involvement in these cases was marked by his unusual and ramble, rambling legal filings, which drew the ire of judges like Judge Mehta, who's pres, uh, presiding over the sprawling Oath Keepers conspiracy cases. For example, Mehta chast- chastised Mosley in December for joining with another attorney to seek the release of two January 6th defendants who claimed they might be given COVID vaccine injections against their will. Meta emphasized that there was, quote, no evidence to support their fantastic fears, unquote. So, frankly, uh, the disbarment of this guy may turn out to be a favor for some of these folks. Maybe they can get a non-insane attorney. (laughs) That might actually help them. To represent them. Uh, In related news of accountability for January 6th, maybe. Ivanka Trump voluntarily submitted herself for eight hours of testimony before the U.S. House uh, Select Panel investigating the January 6th riot. According to CNBC, Trump testified in a session that ended at around 6 p.m. on Tuesday. That lengthy testimony outstripped even the six-hour session that her husband, Jared, Jared Kushner, uh, participated in on Thursday of last week, which a lawmaker on the committee called very helpful. 
Committee Chair Benny Thompson told CNN that the uh, voluntary interview with Trump's eldest daughter started on Tuesday morning. He told the outlet to, quote, she's answering questions. I mean, you know, not in a broad, chatty term, but she's answering questions. When asked if Trump had cited her Fifth Amendment right to avoid answering questions or claimed executive privilege during the session, Thompson told CNN, quote, not that I am aware of. So Thompson told CNN she came in on her own. That has obviously significant value. We did not have to subpoena her. Now, it is believed that she tried several times to get her father to call off the dogs at the Capitol on January 6th to do something about that in the Oval Office. He apparently ignored her despite trying several times to get him to make a statement to try to call off the insurrection. So uh, apparently she was willing to answer all of the questions uh, from the committee over eight hours. Yeah. And, you know, Ivanka and Jared have always tried to portray themselves as the sane ones. So (laughs) I guess we'll find out how insane they are. But there is some breaking news from the Associated Press. The House right now has uh, voted to hold former Trump advisors Peter Navarro and Dan Scavino in contempt of Congress for their refusal to uh, answer those subpoenas. So more accountability coming. Thank you for that. More good news, good accountability news. We expected that. And uh, I guess now we have to wait and uh, see how long and if the Department of Justice comes in with indictments for those uh, criminal contempt charges coming out of the House Select Committee today. So we had planned to discuss a lot about accountability for January 6th on today's program in much more detail with an expert today. But some news that broke uh, just before airtime today. Some sad news indeed, sad not only for us, but I suspect for broadcast listeners as well, has forced us to change plans uh, at the last minute for good or ill. Um, that's one of the reasons that I think we're both sort of shook up today as we as we uh, uh, start the program. Apologies for that. We will take a quick break and that disturbing news will follow straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Take it too far from home Little bit of heaven's just down the road Where we can lay back Open up a cold one Take it slow I like pina Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com That tune we first played on this program after learning about it in the fun stuff section of our friend Eric Bollert's press run newsletter, which he always uh, in- included at the end of those uh, uh, letters to leave us with something to soften the blow of everything that would come before it in these uh, crazy, often horrible Often very dark days. Did I say welcome back to the broadcast? Well, you just did. So there you go. 
Today is another one of those dark days uh, for reasons that we could not have even imagined, frankly, uh, about 30 minutes before going to air today. But let me start here with Bullard's uh, latest press run newsletter from Monday. He writes, why is the press rooting against Biden? Like clockwork, the first Friday of the month brought another blockbuster jobs report. The U.S. economy under Joe Biden added another 400,000 plus new jobs. It was announced last week. Biden is currently on pace, Bullard notes, during his first two full years in office to oversee the creation of 10 million new jobs and an unemployment rate tumbling all the way down to 3 percent. That would be an unprecedented accomplishment in U.S. history. Context, he writes, in four years in office, Trump lost three million jobs, the worst record since Herbert Hoover. Yet the press shrugs off the good news, determined to keep Biden pinned down. Politico stressed on Friday, quote, the reality is that one strong jobs report does not snap the administration out of its current circumstances. Bullard asks, how about 11 straight strong job reports? Would that do the trick? Because the U.S. economy under Biden has been adding more than 400,000 jobs per month for 11 straight months. The glaring disconnect between reality and how the press depicts White House accomplishments means a key question lingers. Why is the press rooting against Biden? Is the press either hoping for a Trump return to the White House or at least committed to keeping Biden down so the 2024 rematch will be close and entertaining for the press to cover? Is that why Ginny Thomas' insurrection story was politely marched off the stage after just a few days of coverage last week by the same news outlets that are now in year three of their dogged Hunter Biden reporting? He cites ABC This Week, which included 19 references to Hunter Biden yesterday alone. Just look at the relentless, dour economic coverage for the press. Inflation remains the dominant bad news for Democrats' economic story. Even on Friday, the day the stellar jobs report was released, quote, inflation was mentioned on cable news nearly as often as jobs, according to TVEyes.com. Axios contorted itself by claiming Biden's promise to add millions of new jobs, which he has already accomplished was being threatened because there aren't enough workers, because so few people are out of work or something. Near the end of uh, this column, uh, Eric writes, uh, and remember all winter how the press treated COVID as the most important crisis that Biden faced and hung the pandemic around his neck. Well, today that topic has vanished. The press has given the White House no credit for steering the country back to normalcy and instead has latched onto gas prices as being a defining issue under Joe Biden. The buried COVID coverage represents a telling example of how an issue that the press itself claimed would define the Biden administration gets translated into no news at all. When it turns to positive territory, the Beltway, writes Bullard, needs to take its thumb off the Biden scale. That's his uh, his commentary uh, on the Beltway press, as usual, sharp as always and uh, 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 always a, a big influence on this program. With that in mind, 
the progressive political world, the entire world, in fact, as well as both the Brad blog and the Bradcast, lost a very dear friend and a critical ally for courageous, indefatigable truth today. As we learned just before airtime this afternoon, a frequent and much-loved guest on this program for years now, longtime progressive media analyst and critic Eric Bollert, died. Apparently on Monday, but we're only learning about it today, uh, he died at 57 years of age in a bicycle accident. We learned this uh, via Soledad O'Brien on Twitter after longtime listener DR sent us an email heads up just before airtime and sort of, uh, well, very much changed the course of today's program. Uh, I, I was and am somewhat speechless, <clears throat> so allow me to turn to Greg Evans at Deadline here, who seems to have the uh, earliest report on all of this. Uh, Eric Bullard a media critic devoted to calling out right-wing misinformation through his writing at Media Matters for America, Salon, Daily Coast, and most recently as the founder of the Press Run website, died Monday in a bike accident. He was 57. His death was announced on Twitter today by journalist and friend Soledad O'Brien, who called Bullard, quote, a fierce and fearless defender of the truth. Bullard apparently was struck by a train while biking in Montclair, New Jersey. Uh, O'Brien writes, this is a terrible loss. We've lost an awesome human being, handsome, cool, witty, uh, witty dude who kicked ass on our behalf. Crazy devotion to facts, context and good reporting. Enemy of BS and fake news. She described Bullard as an amazing friend, adding... Uh, brutal to bad media on Twitter, sweetest guy in real life. Former Secretary of State and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton tweeted, quote, I'm devastated for his family and friends and will miss his critical work to counteract misinformation and media bias. What a loss. And I got to tell you, I can't even imagine what Eric would think about Hillary Clinton. I know. Tweeting out in his memory like that. Uh, Media Matters released a statement saying, in part, we are better for having known and worked with such a thoughtful, fearless and passionate media critic. It was always a treat when Eric would visit the D.C. office while he was direct and unsparing on social media. He was equally as warm, inspiring and helpful to his colleagues. Uh, He began his media career writing, uh, covering music at Billboard and Rolling Stone. Then pivoted to media coverage uh, as a staff writer at Salon, then 10 years as a senior fellow at the media watchdog Media Matters for America. Uh, Salon said in a statement, we are devastated by the loss of esteemed journalist and former Salon, uh, Salon senior writer Eric Bullard. His passing is a huge loss to media criticism and progressive journalism. I could not agree more. Yes. Uh, most recently, he was the founder of the reader-supported press run on Substack, which he started in 2020 with the mission of delivering, quote, unfiltered, passionate and proudly progressive critique of the political press in the age of Trump. Bullard also wrote the books Lap Dogs, How the Press Rolled Over for Bush and Bloggers on the Bus, How the Internet Changed Politics and the Press. Uh, in which he covered the rise of the bloggers during the Bush administration, the ones who, you know, held them accountable when the corporate media simply refused to do so. 
for a whole bunch of years. He writes in that book uh, about folks like our guest on our previous program, Jeannie Devon of Mudflaps and other uh, Mudflats, I should say, and other frequent guests on this program like Heather Digby Parton of Hullabaloo, Marcy Wheeler of Empty Whale all from the golden age of blogging, later replaced by and uh, largely replaced by social media. Uh, A resident of Montclair, New Jersey, Bullard was a frequent commenter on cable news and social media. He's survived by his wife, Tracy, and his two children, Jane and Ben. Kind tributes continue to pour out uh, via Twitter as we go to air. MSNBC's Chris Hayes noted, this is devastating, my God. A real mensch. Lawrence Hmm. O'Donnell said this is deeply tragic. Eric was brilliant and relentless. John Stewart tweeted, rest in peace, Eric Bullert. Greatly admired his passion and tenacity. As did we. Uh, Eric, uh, for longtime listeners, you already know, he was a great friend of this program. He appeared countless times over the years. I don't know. I don't know if he ever said no. (laughs) <laughs> when I'd uh, ask him to join, uh, sometimes even at the last minute. He was also uh, he would also frequently join us for our special coverage for the full hour with uh, with Digby. Yes, he was always insightful, always funny, yep. brought receipts for everything. He did uh, when we, we, we you know when we would do those special coverage shows after debate for presidential debates or State of the Union. He was also, by the way, a longtime friend of Bradblog.com. When I took on the New York Times in particular, but New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, NPR, PBS, all of them regarding uh, James O'Keefe and his fake acorn pimp hoax. Remember that? Oh, yes. I covered in great detail how, uh, the, you know, at the time when the media thought this was a real thing, when, you know, when they actually thought that this uh, con man, James O'Keefe, you know, dressed up like a 1970s black exploitation pimp and walked into these community service places uh, called Acorn, that he was dressed as a pimp, uh, and they were just the employees that were just so stupid, they couldn't tell that this kid, this skinny white kid, wasn't actually a pimp. All of that was fake. All of that was added after the fact. And yet the media reported on this, you know, constantly as saying, oh, James O'Keefe, who appeared uh, dressed as a pimp in the Acorn offices, blah, blah, blah. It was all nonsense. I had to go out of my way for months in order to prove to many of these media outlets that their reporting was simply wrong. Eventually, the New York Times changed about 12 different stories. But Eric, at the time, uh, I believe he was at Media Matters at the time, he helped sort of elevate my reporting on that uh, with his coverage over at Media Matters. And, uh, you know, when he's described as fearless, uh, he really was. Yes. Uh, he, he did not. And tireless. Yeah. He, he, did he did not, not back down anywhere anytime. No, he did not, and it was quite enjoyable to watch. He did not back down from anyone. Uh, relentless attacks from folks on the right in particular, but he also took on many targets on the left, you know, mainstream corporate media outlets, uh, even some in the Democratic Party. He was an indefatigable Twitter opponent to the late Andrew Breitbart, their sort of online food fights became must-follow Twitter wars, frankly, until Breitbart passed away. 
at a similarly young age. In this case, that was due to heart attack. I remember that Eric made an error in, in one of his columns not long ago, and he talked about it on this show uh, b- before uh, we realized that it was an error, a listener actually called him out on it, and I let him know about that right after the show. Eric had the decency to apologize and retract the column thereafter. I think we discussed that on Eric's uh, subsequent appearance, and I believe his final appearance on this show back in January of this year. We... We had a very different show planned for today, but given the uh, contribution of uh, Bollert to this program and to our blog over the years, uh, and and more importantly to the progressive cause and to the important work that he did as a progressive critic filling a space that very few people did, it sort of seems appropriate uh, to share his his last appearance on on this program with you today, which we'll we'll do in a moment. Yes, uh, I, he was he was really a true patriot, truly loved this country, a true friend, a true mensch, as somebody had mentioned before. Mm-hmm. And uh, my heart just goes out to his family. You know, um, he was always insightful, and I will really miss his friendship and his voice. So uh, we sort of had our wind knocked out of us uh, today uh, with this news just before airtime. Forgive us for that. But uh, we thought, you know what, Um, we'll restructure things. Our our guest we had planned for today, we will do that tomorrow. There will be time to catch up. Uh, But for now, we thought a good time to uh, give a a hat tip to our old friend Eric, who unbelievably we have lost. Uh, Let's take a quick break. And we will come back with uh, Eric Bullert's final appearance, apparently, on the broadcast uh, from January 19 uh, to discuss at the time just a few months ago. You know, I always wanted to call. I always said, you know what? Uh, we, we always have Eric. If we get in trouble, we can call <laughs> Eric at the last minute yeah. uh, as a guest. Uh, and I had wanted to call him recently in a few weeks. I said, no, you know what? Let's we'll, we'll save Eric. Uh, now, I'm sorry that we did, but uh, that said, let's take a quick break. We'll come back uh, with Eric Bullert uh, discussing in January of this year Joe Biden's first year in office and specifically the corporate media's coverage of him as compared with their coverage of Donald Trump. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Okay, welcome back to the broadcast. This is uh, the final appearance from Eric Bullert, our very good friend and media critic from January 19, 2022, on this program. Uh, We learned just before airtime today that Eric Bullert died at the age of 57. Here's his final appearance on the broadcast. Well, that's jaunty. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. By the way, that song is Still Life by Carson McHone, a new cut that I only learned about thanks to my guest joining me momentarily, Eric Bullert, and his uh, press run newsletter, which in addition to incisive media critiques, also includes a fun stuff section each day because we all need a break, as he writes, usually with a swell new song that Eric has found uh, of late. Anyway, he will be with us here momentarily. Uh, Today, 
Joe Biden is celebrating, if that's the right word for it, the end of his first year in office. It has been a rough one for sure, with a number of huge political victories, such as the landmark American Rescue Plan adopted without the vote of a single Republican who was willing to expand the availability of COVID vaccines to every American or put cash money in the pockets of struggling Americans, as the GOP was, by the way, more than willing to do while Donald Trump was in office during the pandemic. Neither were they interested in expanding the child tax credit with monthly payouts in the American Rescue Plan or lower health care premiums for Americans, again, in the middle of a pandemic. Joe Biden, nonetheless, got that through along with his Democrats. In his first year, Biden also shepherded a landmark bipartisan, long overdue, nearly $1 trillion infrastructure plan. But at the same time, thanks to one intransigent Democratic senator from a red state that voted for Donald Trump in 2020 by some 60 points, he has been unable so far to pass his transformative Build Back Better Act to expand even further health care, child care, elder care, uh, parental leave, education and fight climate change. And if the week continues as expected, Joe Biden will also not be able to move long overdue, absolutely critical voting rights and election protection laws. Thanks to that same intransigent, intransigent Democratic senator from West Virginia and another one from Arizona. Moreover, while Joe Biden's effort to tackle the coronavirus saw early success after the passage of the American Rescue Plan, it faltered once new, deadlier and, well, more transmissible variants were able to multiply, thanks in no small part to those in this country who refused to become vaccinated based on an avalanche of misinformation largely from the right-wing media. At the same time... Joe Biden has had to fight headwinds of perfectly predictable post-pandemic supply chain and inflationary pressures, even as the economy continued to soar for most of the year, resulting in record record low unemployment. Global inflation and supply chain issues, it seems, got plenty of attention from the nation's media, who seemed to blame the new president for both both of these global issues while an economy that outpaced the rest of the world, record low unemployment numbers and all-time job creation numbers for a first-year president, well, that received much less attention from the media. At the one-year mark of his presidency, according to Gallup Today, during his first year in office, an average of nearly 49% of Americans approved of the job President Joe Biden was doing, while a new Gallup poll finds 40% of U.S. adults today approve of the job he is doing. That is his lowest to date. Among post-World War II presidents, they note, elected to their first term, only Donald Trump had a lower first year average rating at just above 38 percent. And yet, maybe I missed it, but even with his even lower first year average approval ratings, I don't recall the panic by corporate media at the time to run stories on how Donald Trump's presidency was all but over after his first absolutely disastrous year. It was just par for the course, I guess, and stayed that way with 
approval ratings that were always lower than Joe Biden's from Joe Biden's very first day in office and up until now. Joining us now for some thoughts on how the media performed its critical, constitutionally protective function during Joe Biden's first year and for a few thoughts on some of the stories he's been covering in his must-read newsletter. It's our old friend and longtime media analyst Eric Bollert, publisher of the Press Run email newsletter, which you can and should subscribe to at PressRun.media. Oh, Mr. Bollert, welcome back. And since I don't believe we've spoken since last fall, Happy New Year, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy New Year to you. Eric, are you familiar with the New York Times PitchBot parody account on Twitter? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, let me just for readers who don't, uh, listeners who don't know, let me let me share a few of the uh, a few of these because it, it leads to a question here. So uh, it's a it's a parody account on Twitter, uh, as if these are New York Times story pitches. Opinion: I'm not racist. I just don't think it should be easy for black people to vote. Something you might actually read in the New York Times. America's next great restaurants are in the suburbs. Here's why that's bad news for Joe Biden. That's another pitch bot. Uh, here's one more. The Republican Party has become a white grievance party that seeks to overthrow our democracy in order to increase its ability to grift. But let's not pretend the Democratic Party is perfect either. <laughs> so, uh, Eric, those are some of the just the recent uh, New York Times PitchBot tweets. But here is an actual New York Times alert that was sent to me on my iPhone late last week. Quote, with Democrats push for far reaching voting rights legislation nearing a dead end, they must decide whether to compromise or keep pressing. And as I tweeted out, along with uh, a graphic of that alert and a, uh, a phrase to the New York Times that I cannot repeat on radio, I, I added, uh, compromise with who? On what? <laughs> I, I mean, Excellent they, point. Yeah, they're not calling for compromise. Republicans aren't calling for compromise on voting rights. Mansion and cinema aren't asking for compromise. Uh, seriously, I could not tell if it was the satirical New York right. Times pitch bot or the real New York Times. You would think that would be the first question an editor would send back to the reporter. <laughs> what compromise are you talking about? But nobody, it's, it's kind of see no here, even no evil, hear yeah. no evil. Uh, Chuck Todd on Meet the Press, uh, I think it was, uh, he, he did this video, and he was asking, well, you know, Biden has really failed to carve out, you know, a coalition, you know, with some moderate Republicans. You know, mm -hmm. why can't... You know, he's been in the, he, you know, Biden was in the Senate for 30 years. He knows how this works. He sold himself, you know, as a, as a master communicator, a negotiator behind the scenes. Why can't, you know, I pointed out every single Republican in the House and in the Senate voted against COVID relief. Yeah. That was a, that was a bill that had 80, 90 percent uh, public approval. That he, <laughs> Biden could not get one Republican yeah. to vote for it. And this is the same uh, press corps that looks around and says, geez, why can't Biden, well, you know, why can't, it, and, and I also pointed out this is exactly what they did to Obama. Why can't, why can't Obama figure yeah. out Mitch McConnell? He's an honest, honorable, stand-up guy. Can't they just have, you know, why doesn't he go have, you know, why doesn't he go play golf with John Boehner? John, <laughs> John Boehner will come around. He's a, reason, he's a reasonable well, guy. And, and just real quick, yeah. it, it's clear in both points. The Republican Party just has to obstruct Democrats, and the press blames the Democrat. 
Donald Trump passed one bill, basically, in four years, which was a tax giveaway to billionaires, mm-hmm. could not get one Democratic vote. Not yeah. one news organization went to sleep you know, anxious at night because Donald Trump couldn't, couldn't get Democratic votes. Yeah, not to mention, by the way, Chuck Todd is kind of wrong uh, twice with that comment because, actually, Joe Biden did carve out a, a, a group of moderate Republicans who joined him on the, the record infrastructure. infrastructure bill. Yeah. Couldn't get any in the House, but that's right. That's right. He got some in the Senate. So leave it to And he Chuck doesn't Todd. get credit for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, anyway, with, with all of those uh, long uh, sort of preambles, I'm, I'm very interested in your sort of general assessment of how the media has been doing from your, your perch over the first year of uh, Biden's presidency. Can it even be compared uh, favorably or otherwise to how they covered Trump? or really any other modern presidency at this point in their first term? Oh, yeah. As I said, I think it's very, very similar to Obama, uh, who this is uh, who is a president who's considered a success, who mm-hmm. basically walk, walked to re-election. If you go back and look at his first year, first term, uh, all these freakouts, oh, his coalition is falling apart, oh, you know, he, mm-hmm. you know the Tea Party's got, really got his number, uh, lots of doomsday coverage for Obama that turned out to be uh, kind of nonsense. In terms of Biden in the first year, uh, I think it's really interesting. I think the turning point was clearly August uh, in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. uh, and and the press uh, finally had a big story. You know, there, there there were columns over the summer about how the Beltway Press was so bored with this guy. <laughs> like, what's going on? Like, okay. You know, if you think back to July, uh, yeah. okay, it's successful COVID. You know, vaccination rate, you know, went from 2% to 60%. Mm-hmm. You know, we're gaining July, I think we gained 900,000 jobs. The press was so bored with competent governance. Mm. Uh, and they missed the Trump chaos and they missed the ratings and the clicks and the nonstop headlines. Uh, and then came Afghanistan. And it, it blew, it changed everything in a few ways. I mean, obviously it was a big story. I argued for weeks the press completely kind of lost its mind on the Afghanistan mm-hmm. story. Just absolutely uh, buried Biden. You know, we had a we had a, a CNN reporter famously saying out, they will never airlift 50,000 people out of here. Uh, and they turned out they airlifted 125,000 people out of there. Right. But that, the press, the press, after Afghanistan was over, the press didn't retreat. The press said, oh, we like this. Yeah. We like this crisis. We mm-hmm. like this chaos. We like breaking news. So let's go to inflation. Let's go to the supply chain. Let's go to cinema and mansion. Let's go to infrastructure. Let's go to negotiation. Let's go to whatever Republicans are yelling about today, and we'll pretend it's all a crisis. Yeah. And so, yes, Biden has taken a hit. Yes, you know, obviously with COVID and, and the variants. But if you look at his polling, he's dropped about five or six points in half a year. Is that a news story? Yes. Do we need stories every single day of the week of the month of the year about Joe Biden's polling? Just in my last point real quick, four months ago right now, Trump was at 37%. Good luck going back and finding stories, an avalanche of stories uh, a a year ago about whether the Trump presidency was failed. How Mm -hmm. How does he reset? This is, you know, all this doomsday coverage. There was an acceptance that Trump was going to poll in the 30s, and that was fine, and the press yep. just went on from there. So that's in terms of 
how the coverage differs from Biden and Trump, I think that's the key one right there. And, you know, the media, the New York Times, et cetera, I suspect they would simply say, oh, they're just trying to be tough on whoever is in the White House, yeah. which <laughs> is, well, listen, I mean, to you know, to some extent that makes sense. Uh, it does, but, unless you look at the person who was in the White House before. But, yeah, keep going. <laughs> well, no, exactly. If you don't look at who was in there before <laughs> and what that has caused for American democracy itself, exactly. which is now at threat by a major American political party working right. to undermine the great American democratic experiment, you got to wonder is, oh, being tough on everyone, is that the right approach uh, in 2022? Yeah, I mean, there are two stories you can write about relentlessly right now. The Republican Party and the threat it faces, uh, and the threat America faces to its attack on free and fair elections. Mm-hmm. Or you can write about Joe Biden's polling. Right. Uh, one is very easy and very safe and everyone agrees. And one is tricky and difficult and it's going to get you in trouble with the right wing and Fox News and the Republican Party. Uh, and, and so guess which one people are, mm-hmm. are really focusing on? You know, Joe Lockhart was on uh, CNN over the weekend on Reliable Sources talking about the Biden coverage. And, you know, he made a really good point, which was, and and if we're talking about who was in the White House before Biden, Biden has gotten, you know, Biden has gotten absolutely no credit from the press for returning decency, normalcy, Mm. truth-telling to the White House. You know, uh, Trump shredded every conceivable protocol. He lied every time he opened his mouth. He, you know, uh, vicious attacks on on journalists, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Trump, uh, you know, uh, Biden came in and flushed all of that away. And he's gotten absolutely no credit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and, you know, they've kind of jumped right into, you know, here's my point in in terms of Trump. They miss Trump. I don't think there's Mm -hmm. any question about it. They miss the adrenaline. They miss the chaos. And I don't think the press wants Trump to be president again. I think they want to keep the playing field level. So when Trump comes back, we can have a close race. And that's what they can cover. And that's what they want. So I kind of feel like they see their job is to keep dinging Biden, keep him low, so Trump has a shot. Because it's all about entertainment. It's all about the spectacle. And, and they want the return of the spectacle. Well, you know, at last week, I, and I, I, I need to give him some credit here, I think. We'll see if you do as well. NPR's Steve Inskeep, who, mm-hmm. frankly, I think he should get a prize for his attempted interview with Donald Trump uh, because yeah. it was very illustrative. It ended with uh, the disgraced former president actually hanging up on him, leaving the interview about halfway through. But it demonstrated, I think, several things, Eric. For example, uh, why it is so difficult to interview the guy because he, well, lies all the time. We know that. But unless you're really prepared, you're just privileging his lies by offering a platform to him, which Inskeep did not do. He sort of, you know, pre-butted the lies before he uh, before he he aired his his conversation with Trump. He didn't do it live. So, you know, in this case, they were able to sort of explain what the lies would be, then let Donald Trump talk about it and then let him walk away in the middle of it. Uh, You know, I I, I think that's one of the reasons why it's good to not interview Donald Trump. And I'll give you the other side of that coin in a second. But what, if anything, did you learn or can we learn, the media learn, from that uh, Inskeep episode with Donald Trump on NPR last week? You know, I I think the best part was it wasn't live. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't a live interview. And so I, I've been complaining about the Trump coverage, but there there are signs of some small improvement. 
uh, Trump rallies are no longer carried live. Uh, Trump said he was going to have a press conference on January 6th, which is mind-boggling, mm-hmm. uh, talking about going back to the scene of the crime. He canceled it, reportedly, because he realized he wasn't going to get live pickup on TV on enough of the networks. You know, the fringe guys were going to cover him. Mm-hmm. But it sounded like he, you know, he wasn't going to get the live platform, national platform that he wanted. The other thing I pointed out last week, the day of, the day before the Inskeep interview, Trump hasn't hasn't sat down with a with a serious uh, journalist to mm-hmm. give a live interview in a year. Yeah, which to me is really kind of startling. Uh, you know, he gives them to OAN and Fox News and all these crazies. Uh, so he's been out of office a year. Will not answer questions from any serious reporter. Uh, he did it once with Inskeep, and as you say, walked away after a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these these to me are. Uh, Good trends. You know, he has no social uh, media presence. He's not. He got kicked off Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. He's not doing mainstream interviews. The one he did did not do well. Uh, I don't quite see how he's going to run for re-election without any of that. Mm-hmm. But back to your Inskeep, que- Inskeep question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I think I thought the key was it wasn't live, mm-hmm. uh, so you don't have to just sit there and listen to the lies. You can. Um, you you know you can uh, you have more of a opportunity to put context in it. Right. He did obviously come very well prepared. He wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't just hey you say uh, you know the election was stolen but lots of people don't. <laughs> right. I mean he was citing lawyers and cases and, and right. things like that. And, and Trump was getting frustrated. In the end, Trump doesn't care. Uh, I mean he has no shame. Uh, I'm not sure if he hung up early because he was upset or he just got bored. Uh, I mean, you can't really shame the shameless. Well, but he but was being held accountable. He was he not was. able to ramble he, on. He, and Yeah, yeah it, it, in small, important ways. Look, if, if, if do I wish someone from NPR who in, uh, interviewed Trump uh, had say, had say, why are you a pathological liar? Mm. What is wrong? <laughs> right. You know, had some, had really laid into him in a factual and accurate and, resp- and you know, I uh-huh. guess, respectable way. That that to me is where where I want to get on all of this, uh, and not re- not treat him as a respected you know, uh, elder states. <laughs> right. Uh, but I, I thought it was a good first step. Absolutely. I, you know, and, and I tend to, um, it's a tough call. I, you know, I tend to simply not cover Trump's lies for the most part, because if I did, I yeah. would spend every, you know, single minute of airtime having to rebut oh, you them really would. because yeah. you're giving them a platform even when you do that. Uh, right. And most folks in the legit media have largely stopped giving Trump unfettered airtime, though maybe that's because he doesn't want to show up. Uh, because he's a coward, or I think you call him a charlatan uh, in your recent column. Right. Um, but that means that his lies only go out to supporters in general at rallies and in the wingnut yeah. media. And that, as uh, TPM's Josh Marshall has been recently arguing, is also a problem, Eric, because mm-hmm. uh, as Josh wrote today, for example, after learning that Trump actually over the weekend at, at his I guess, a rally in Arizona. He actually apparently told supporters that they should cheat in 2022 and 2024 elections. And yet, because it wasn't covered, uh, you know, uh, uh, Josh writes, uh, efforts to stop amplifying Trump have largely allowed him to further 
radicalize without any scrutiny. Well, how the yep. hell should media deal with that problem, Eric? You know, the rallies I thought were, were was interesting that, you know, this is his first rally of the year and he's going to do a bunch. It's a midterm year. Here was the, here, this was the problem with the rally coverage, and, and I'm glad it wasn't covered live, alive, and you're right, you can't follow, you know, he, he has no public standing, he hasn't, you know, he's a, you know, he hangs out in Mar-a-Lago, he doesn't mm-hmm. have any say in, in votes or anything, so why would you, you know, spend your days fact-checking him, and I agree with that, but the rally coverage, this is what was wrong with it, it was just completely whitewashed. And Politico and New York Times, Washington Post, they all did stories about, you know, his strategy and what does this mean? And, you know, you know, who's he going to endorse? It made him seem like a normal candidate. The most important thing he said at that rally, he said the government won't let whites, white people get vaccinated. <laughs> I mean, yeah. how, how was that? I mean, my I, God. I, know. I mean, we've all run out of you know, adjectives to describe this guy. But to me, that was just absolutely jaw-dropping. And so, you know, I, I kind of made fun of CNN the next day. You know, a year out of office, here's how Trump's rebranding himself. I said, he just said, he just claimed whites can't get vaccinated. But yeah, let's do more reporting on his rebranding. There has to be, you, the coverage of Trump, they're, they're still normalizing this guy. Yeah. You know, what what's his fundraising like? Who's he going to endorse, you know? What's he saying about Ron DeSantis? Is there a few down in Florida? He's saying the government won't let white people get vaccinated. That's your only headline. Right. That's your only story. That's it. Right. That's well, it. Although There's I, nothing else to cover. I, I would add there is the fact that he told his supporters <laughs> to cheat in the 2022 and 2024 elections. Very close second. That ought to be there second. as well. I mean, clearly, he, uh, you know, Trump has obviously hacked the American press because guess yes, what? Yes. In a segment on media coverage of Joe Biden, Eric Bullard, we've already spent more time on Donald Trump, I think, just to. Uh, yeah, and, and, <laughs> and, and, and it's, yeah, and uh, that's totally fair uh, observation. And, and I think it's also because, you know, the, the press is kind of framing everything on, on the looming Trump. And, yep. you know, even the Biden coverage yep. uh, of, of his administration, it's always about, well, Trump's on the rise and Republic, you know, and, and Democrats are doomed uh, and all this stuff. And, and you know, I think the Biden stuff is, is really just unfair and it's just a, a complete runaway narrative uh, at this point. I mean, everyone is just piling on. Mm. Uh, and, you know, just real quick, Washington Post did a big 3,000-word, I counted them, 43-paragraph story, Biden's first year in office, not one reference to the 6.2 million jobs that were created uh, in his first year, which has never happened before in in, in American history. His signature uh, achievement isn't even mentioned in a 3,000-word article, which was complete doomsday analysis. I mean, mm. that doesn't happen by accident. That's not a coincidence. Virtually every Biden year one story uh, fails to mention the 6.2 uh, million jobs, the 3.9% unemployment. Quick point, in February, CBO said it is going to take five years. If everything goes right, it's going to take five years for the United States to get 3.9% unemployment. We're there. We did it in seven months. It's just completely Flush down the memory hole. It doesn't happen because there's a story the press wants to tell. 
And, you know, those numbers, those unemployment, those record low unemployment numbers, they tend to come out on the same day that they also put out inflation numbers. And uh, A, the inflation numbers, they do just a terrible job of reporting. Inflation was 7% in December. Well, no, it wasn't 7% in December. It was That seven... would be a big story. Yeah, I know, but they do this month after month oh, after month. That's absolutely. how they put it out there. Oh, my absolutely. God, it was 62 last month. So, uh, no, that's the annualized number. It was actually much, much lower in, uh, in, was, in December. It was, it was 0.5 in December. Right. right exactly. But they, uh, they don't give you that context. That's what they focus on. And then they, you know, if they bother to get around to, uh, dis- you know, to discussing the record low unemployment at all, you know, we're lucky. Now, with these complaints, Eric, are these the same things that we hear whenever there's a Republican in office and it's, you know, the right wingers who are making these same complaints? Uh, you know, they were complaining all the way through the Trump years. Uh, oh, the uh, the economy is on rocket fuel. Why isn't the media talking about that? Uh, no, it, it, it's a different response. It's a different response because the, the media fears those right wing attacks. Uh, and they pay a lot more uh, attention mm. to them. Look, you know, back to your point, and that's a good one. The press would say, well, we're just holding the White House accountable, and, you know, we're always tough on whoever's in the White House. That, that on paper, makes sense. And, look, I think the, I think the administration fell down on the, on the whole testing this fall, should have had tens of millions in a warehouse somewhere. I get that. That was a mistake. So, the, no, I don't think most serious people on the left say, you know, a Democrat can't be criticized. But we're in such a unique situation because we have two sides. We have a, a you know a, a center left Democrat doing his best, and we have a Republican Party that wants to destroy free and fair elections in America. Yeah. So if you're the press, don't play that down the middle. Mm-hmm. Don't pretend those are those are two uh, those are those are similar choices. Mm. Like use your head, understand what the threat we're facing. And don't pretend that Biden's polling numbers are the same as Trump. And actually, Biden's polling numbers are 10 times more important than Trump saying white people can't get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. Like, mm-hmm. uh, understand the big picture and understand the threat we're facing. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, that I've been wrestling with, because to some, in, in, in some degree, these these critiques that we might have that we're talking about here of, of the media coverage might be. You know, similar critiques uh, that we would have uh, for the media in the uh, in the Obama era, as you mentioned. You know, their the yeah, coverage right, is right. very similar to that. And, you know, they're fair enough critiques. But the idea that they do not seem to understand the moment. And by the way, we haven't exactly. even gotten to, you know, climate change, the other right. oh, existential threat that is facing the, 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 the planet. You know, Absolutely. so between that and between American democracy itself now at threat of falling, you think you would uh, you, you think the media would go about it differently. I ask myself every day, am I going about this correctly, given the situation that we're in? I do not get the sense that uh, our corporate media is even asking themselves those questions. No, I, and I think when, when Trump was inaugurated, uh, the, the press didn't really change how it, how it covered Trump. It treated him, um, you know, I've said before, there were some bizarre news cycles under his term. And you would read the coverage, you would think Jeb Bush were president. You would think mm. John McCain was president. You would think this 
center right, you know, mm. normal traditional, <laughs> not this madman narcissist. Um, so yeah, the, right. I, I, I think mm. with the Biden era, they just want to play this game. His polling is down. Let's get some. Yep. You know, the, we found a couple Democrats who are critical of him. These aren't the times for the norm, right. and the Trump years weren't the time for the norm, uh, and, and, and we're not seeing drastic change. Well, uh, my plan, Eric Bowler, to ask you about some of your recent press run stuff, uh, oh, well, I'm going to have to save that for Next another time. day because this was an interesting <laughs> conversation. I will point, folks, of course, to PressRun.media, uh, some very interesting coverage uh, about ABC News, Good Morning America, and how they screwed up, uh, unbelievably screwed up a COVID-related story and have apparently failed to apologize for it since, even while uh, Fox News is having a heyday. Well, I guess trying to kill its own viewers. But, you know, <laughs> you got to do what you got to do, uh, Mr. Just Murdoch. another week. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Eric Bullard, find his work. As I said, sign up for his newsletter, PressRun.media. Find him on the Twitters at Eric Bullard. My friend, always appreciates joining us. We will be bothering you again soon. You have been warned. Oh, anytime. Talk to you soon. Thank you, brother. That was Eric Bullert's final appearance on the broadcast. Our friend Eric Bullert of Press Run uh, died this week on Monday at the age of 57 in a tragic bike accident, which we learned about uh, just before airtime today. That conversation uh, with Eric from January 19, 2022. Uh, as uh, he always said in his newsletters at Press Run, stay healthy, be kind. He, uh, his loss is a tremendous one. He will be greatly missed. But I'm glad we were able to share that uh, final interview with Eric. Yes, yes. Hug your loved ones. Time is short. we got to get out. Uh, my thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We will be back with you tomorrow with a hopefully somewhat brighter show. Uh, until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Yeah, we like home. We ain't got to take it too far from home. Little bit of heaven's just down the road. Where we can lay back, open up a cold one, take it slow. I like pina colada.